You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. One, I have to make a correction from the last time I spoke. Uh, I'm, I misspoke. Uh, when I was talking about the ancient religions, I, had, uh, I was talking about Greek, and it was the Koine Greek, and I added an extra couple of sibl- syllables there. I said Koinonia Greek. So uh, my apologies. Uh, I didn't want to offend anybody, any of the uh, alumni from Koinonia School, so uh, I just wanted to make that correction. And uh, second is, so we're week 10. Oh no, second thing is the handout. Uh, You notice we're not going to have any slides today. We're just going to do the handout because I'm going to be covering a lot of passages. So there's two rules about the handout. The bold stuff is what we're going to read together. The other passages I'm going to reference, so we don't, I don't want to give you guys paper cuts, um, but the uh, other references are there for you to study at home uh, on your own later on if you feel so inclined or inspired. So, good morning. We're week 10 now into the book of Ecclesiastes. How are we finding that? It's a heavy book, right? Good? We're enjoying it? Okay. So just for those folks that are new, we've got uh, five men that have volunteered while our pastor is on a, a sabbatical. And we've been rotating, and uh, we've been assigned different passages to go through. So we've been collaborating together as well in between weeks, and we're trying to present a united message. And uh, so I hope you're enjoying it. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. So if you have your Bible, I'd really encourage you to open up your Bible and have it open in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew in, the, uh, in front of you. And it's, uh, we feel it's really important that you have God's Word open in front of you. Also, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one that's in front of you home. Uh, we feel it's important that you have easy and open access to God's Word. So, um, so if, if we can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You hipsters and techies, you can follow along on your phone if you, uh, if you have the app. So I'm going to read chapter 6, and this is what God's word said. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the last few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Can we just bow our heads and pray? Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for those that are sitting here. I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I just humbly ask that my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts. We ask for the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and grasp your word. And if there's anything that I say is not in keeping with your will and your word, I just pray that those words fall on deaf ears. I just, uh, we just pray that uh, we can dive into today's, today's lesson so that we can grow closer to you. So please, Lord, draw us closer to you. But above all these things, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit. We are seeing that the teacher is continuing the thought that he actually started back in chapter two. So for those that haven't been following along or are new, the book title Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of the word Kohelet. Kohelet is the Hebrew name for the book originally. Both terms mean either one who gathers or one who teaches, or one who preaches. So that's what that funky name Ecclesiastes means in the Bible. So um, the NIV uses the term teacher to refer to the author, so that's what, when we use the term, uh, some of the, the guys that have been preaching have been using the term kohelet, or teacher, or preacher. It's all interchangeable. Originally the book was written by Solomon, or it's based on Solomon's writings at the very least. So. That's what we're referring back to. So when we're referring to Kohelet, teacher, preacher, we're referring to the author, the original author of the book, okay? Just a quick recap there. Okay, so the teacher, I I prefer the term teacher rather than preacher for the author of this book. So the teacher is, is continuing the thought that he actually started back in chapter two of the book. And that thought really boils down to the idea of the foolishness of pursuing happiness without God through the accumulation of wealth and power. The teacher did take a brief detour in chapters three and four when he dealt with justice, and last week, uh, Grant talked, or two weeks ago, Grant talked about the proper worship of God, but he picked up, uh, the author picked up on the original theme last week in chapter five, and we are going to look at it again this week from a little bit different perspective. We will deal with some sensitive issues today as well, so let's look at chapter six, verse one. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So we see here in chapter six, verse one, that the teacher is comparing the man in chapter five, verse 19. He's referring to the man, comparing the man in the previous verse, chapter five, verse 19, with the man in the first part of chapter six. So let's just back up one verse, look at chapter five, verse 19, so we can reacquaint ourselves with the man that uh, Kyle introduced us to last week. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions 
and power to enjoy them, there's kind of the key there, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So do you see how the teacher is framing this man? God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy those possessions. The teacher is presenting the idea that even the power to enjoy one's possessions and accomplishments come from God. God the Father chooses to allow even some unbelievers to find fulfillment and enjoyment in their lives through just their accomplishments and wealth. The Father also allows believers to find enjoyment from these same things as well, presumably because we find fulfillment in our identity in Christ. If you are a believer, we should follow the advice from Paul in Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, which Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through the faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we, as believers, we should find our fullness in Christ through the Spirit, so that we may be satisfied with whatever God the Father permits us to have in this life. Psalm 145, verses 7 to 20, 17 to 20, puts it another way. Please turn there with me. It's just a couple books to your left. Psalms 145. Psalm 145. Verses 17 to 20. The Lord is, is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves us, all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So do you notice in this passage the repetition of the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps? Do we remember what that, uh, what that signifies? That, one, that word, Lord, in all caps, denotes the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, that's the one true God. Yahweh, in this passage, Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Yahweh fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Yahweh does this for us. He preserves us. Father God. Hang on to that thought. We will circle back to that in a couple of minutes. So in Ecclesiastes, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in, in Ecclesiastes 5.19, we meet a man for whom God has given the power to enjoy his life and his possessions. God has given this enjoyment to the man. But in chapter 6, the teacher lets us know that he is pivoting in his thinking through the use of the phrase, there is an evil that I have seen. The teacher is talking about a new situation, something that is evil in his eyes. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. 
A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. Okay, stop there for a moment. Who is this man that Solomon is talking about in verse 2? Is this verse autobiographical to Solomon? I think it is. Do you see the phrase wealth, possessions, and honor? That's a pretty specific grouping of three attributes, don't you agree? Wealth, possessions, and honor. Do you remember in a recent sermon when I mentioned that Solomon was visited twice by Yahweh? I'm going to remind us of what happened on the first visit. And this is what 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says. God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions. This is Yahweh talking. Because this was in your heart, you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you and have not even asked for a long life. But you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who, ha- who were before you and none after you shall have the like. So this passage in 2 Chronicles takes place when Solomon had just inherited the throne from his father David, and at that time Solomon was still humble enough and close enough with Yahweh that Solomon reached out to God through prayer. Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge so that he could properly govern God's people. As a reward for reaching out to Yahweh, Solomon is granted three additional rewards. Did you see the particular grouping in verse 12? Riches, also also known as wealth, and possessions and honor. So those are the the three same things that the teacher is addressing with the example of the man here in chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes. We see that the man has wealth, possessions, and honor, but he has no more than that because verse 2, sorry, he has more than that because in verse 2, it goes on to say that he lacks nothing of all that, his, that, all that he desires. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon declared of himself, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. So is Solomon referring to himself here in chapter 6? I'll make two more points and then I'll let you decide. In verse 2 of chapter 6, Solomon continues, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. So Solomon is claiming that this man that he is referring to here in chapter 6, God has withheld the power to enjoy these things in his life. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, at the end of this long list of accomplishments that Solomon brags about, he ends with the phrase, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That verse right there was not written by a man who was enjoying the fruit of his labors. Okay, final point about this, if this this verse is autobiographical in regards to Solomon. Solomon mentions here uh, in verse 2, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Now I have to admit, when I first read about a stranger enjoying Solomon's things, I was a little confused. I mean, your things are your things, right? And you get to decide what happens to them when you die? Unless, of course, you're a king, 
and you're invaded by a neighboring kingdom and you become defeated. Then to the victor goes the spoils. And now suddenly a stranger is enjoying all the things that you've worked so hard to accumulate. We know that Solomon was concerned about the possibility due to the fact that despite Yahweh warning the Israelites not to intermarry with surrounding cultures, Solomon had 700 wives by the time of his death, and most of these were marriages that were simply consummated for the sake of strategic alliances with surrounding kingdoms so war wouldn't break out and he wouldn't be invaded. Ultimately, all of that was useless anyway because you can read of Solomon's legacy in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9 to 43. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but I encourage you to read it this week. 1 Kings 11, 9 to 43 tells how Yahweh raised enemies to tear the united kingdom from the grasp of Solomon's heirs. So here, we have seen that Solomon has been given wealth, possessions, and honor, previously complained about not enjoying his exploits, and as a king, Solomon was concerned about strangers taking his wealth and possessions. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2. We see the teacher wraps up this thought with the now famous word, hevel, or vanity. But that's not enough for the teacher. He adds the qualifier that this fate is a grievous evil. I mean, he may be right. If your priorities are such that Yahweh, Father God, and Jesus Christ are not at the top of your priorities, if you are looking to your wealth, possessions, and honor to give meaning to your life, then if God withholds the power to enjoy them, then how meaningless would your life be to you? We know that as Christians, we should be not looking to these things for our happiness. We should not be looking to the world or to culture, and definitely not to celebrities for our morals. They are not the place to, places to look for the guideposts that serve to help us as we go through life and help us to determine if we are winning or not. Mark 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? As Christians, we can accumulate wealth, work hard, and be successful in our careers without these things becoming sin as long as we keep them in the proper perspective and the proper priority. We also must regularly check our heart attitudes to make sure we are keeping our lives in the proper biblical balance. We must not allow wealth and possessions to turn into idols in our lives. The pursuit of these things cannot come between us and our relationship with Jesus. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see the warning that Paul is impressing on Timothy to share with his flock? The love of money and this craving for wealth, that was what was appearing here. Those are indicators that there were some who had an incorrect heart attitude. As Christians, we should love Jesus. We should crave to be like him and do what he wills for our lives. In 2 Timothy 3.2, Paul expands on the same theme. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. In this warning, Paul starts with the, in the phrase, in the last days. But people have been, been behaving like this for a long time, haven't they? So Christians can have wealth and possessions, I would warn against chasing after too much honor. Desiring honor for oneself is another indicator of a Christian life out of balance. 
But let's move on to the next thought in today's text. This next part of the passage deals with something that some of us in this congregation have some experience with, and it talks about it in a rather blunt way. I want to deal with this section in a more sensitive way because I know that several of you have lost a child or grandchild, some in stillbirth, some later in life, and some of you have experienced the same pain as Marilyn and I have through miscarriage. I won't make apologies for Scripture. I believe it is the literal God-breathed inspired Word of God, and it stands and falls on its own merits. It does not need a lowly, sinful man like me to apologize or to defend what it says. I can, however, address some teachings with an awareness of how certain people in our flock have dealt with them and bring them forward in a sensitive way. Having said that, I will take a few moments to address the historical and cultural realities of the time that these passages were written to contend with. I'll try and bring them forward in a more delicately worded manner than in the original text. Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 3. In verse 3 of chapter 6, the teacher is falling back on a cultural marker for happiness. Verse 3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life goods things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now I think that Solomon is no longer speaking autobiographically here, but he has moved on to another man in this example. So the man being referred to in this verse is a generic man, a general representation for all who are living at this time. Verse three says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years. There's some repetition regarding the length of the man's life because the number of children that he has is actually influenced more by the number of wives than he has than by the length of uh, years that he lives. I mean, a man with a hundred wives could have a hundred children in one year, right? He'd be tired, but he could conceivably have a hundred children in one year. So that's why the passage emphasizes the longevity of life. That, that's why the, he repeats long years twice. And it's the length of his lifespan that is more important to the, or the illustration here. So, the middle of verse 3 repeats the same theme that the teacher stated at the start of today's passage. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. This is the first indicator that this man has a problem. The second indicator is in the words in the passage, but he also has no burial. In the Hebrew culture of that time, if a person, especially a wealthy person, with numerous offspring had no burial, it was a mark of a despised man and an unmourned end to his life. No burial meant that nobody was missing this man in his passing. It was a sign of a detested individual. A man in that day, actually a man even in today, would like to think that his life mattered enough and that he accomplished enough and that he did enough good in his life that someone would miss him and mourn for him. But such is not the, man, the case for the man in this illustration. Now for the bluntly worded part. The teacher uses this comparison, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Those are harsh words. For those of us who has, have experienced this loss, our first in instinct is to cry out and say, no, it's not true, I would rather have my child for a little while longer. In verse four, the teacher expands on this concept, and verse four says, for it, referring to the stillborn child, 
comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Stop there for a moment. I want you to remember that this is the prevailing sentiment about this life on earth for the Israelites at that time. What Solomon is saying here is the stillborn child comes, is born without meaning, it has no purpose in its life. The child arrives in darkness without opening its eyes and departs in darkness, never having seen the sun, and in darkness the child's name is shrouded. In that culture, one's name was more than just a label. In Hebrew thought, one's name also included that person's personality and character. In that culture at that time, and I'll explain that further in a minute, in that culture, the name is shrouded for the stillborn child because the parent was unable to see the personality and the character of the child develop. Now, in doing the research for this passage, I became aware of the thinking of the Hebrew culture at that time of the writing of this passage. I want to read you a quote from one of the books describing for us the historical cultural background that I feel we need so that we can fully understand this passage. I'm quoting from the Dictionary of the Old Testament Wisdom, Poetry, and Writings, and it's edited by Tremper Longman III. You guys have all heard of him, right? In regards to the afterlife, it says, the Old Testament books of wisdom, poetry, and writings largely reflect the standard Israelite perspective that there is no meaningful existence beyond death. Okay, let me repeat that. The Old Testament books of wisdom, poetry, and writings largely reflect the standard Israelite perspective that there is no meaningful existence beyond death. The dictionary goes on. It says, for most of the Old Testament, death leads to a shadowy, insubstantial existence in the underworld called Sheol. Psalm 6, verse 5 states, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, uh, who will give you praise? The psalmist is indicating that when the Israelites passed from this life, they were unsure of what awaited them. They thought that their relationship with Yahweh would end and they wouldn't even be able to give God praise anymore. This thought carried forward to the time of Jesus. Even in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was division between the Jewish religious leadership on the subject of the resurrection. Keep in mind this passage was written before the crucifixion of Jesus. In Matthew 22, verse 23, it says, and it's referring to when the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. And Matthew 22, 23, it says, this, that same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees den- denied the resurrection. They believed that the afterlife consisted of a dark, shadowy place called Sheol, and it was kind of a non-life, if you will, rather than an afterlife. Now, remember that the Sadducees were made up of the priests, and they were led by the high priest at the temple? They were in charge of the sacrifices and the offerings. Now, the Pharisees were the other religious leaders at the time of Jesus that stood in opposition to this thinking of life after death. The Pharisees did believe in a bodily resurrection. This is the thinking about what happens at death for the Jews at this time in their culture. Okay, so let's go back to chapter 6, verse 5. Solomon continues in verse 5. Moreover, it, he's still talking about the stillborn child, has not seen the sun or known anything yet. It, the stillborn child, finds rest rather than he. He is 
being the man who lived many years and had a hundred children, yet could not enjoy his prosperity. The child did not have a chance to open its eyes and therefore had never seen the sun, or it never knew anything. The child was without knowledge or experience of this world, and because of this fact, the child avoided all the trials and heartache of this world, and thus has more rest. Again, this is harshly worded for those of us that have experienced this type of loss. But even in Old Testament times, there were some who had faith in God's promises and clung to the fact that God is just and loving, and we can hope in those unchanging attributes of his. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Okay, a little context here while you're turning. Nathan has come to King David with a word from the Lord, a word from Yahweh, concerning that the sin that David had committed against God in the death of Uriah. Remember, David arranged the circumstances of that righteous man's death to cover the sin of adultery that David had committed with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. As punishment to David, Nathan instructs him that Yahweh will cause the child of this sinful union to die. Let's look at 2 Samuel. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? But he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Verse 22, here's the hope. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. In verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So, okay, two things here. First, this is not prescriptive for every miscarriage, stillbirth, or infant death, okay? We live in a period of grace. Thanks be to God for the completed work on the cross done by Jesus and for those of us who put our faith in him. If you are a believer, why would God the Father punish you by taking your child? Does that sound like something that a holy and just God would do? No. We do, however, live in a sinful, fallen world where death now does exist. But second, we can see here in verse 23 that David had the hope and faith in God that he would be reunited with his child. 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I see great hope in those words. David is not speaking like a man who is going to a shadowy, insubstantial existence, is he? David doesn't appear to be speaking about Sheol. David is looking forward to a time when he will be reunited and in such a meaningful way that he will recognize his child and will be able to spend time with it. Now for us as believers, we have even more assurance than David did. We have the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one whose scripture tells us defeated death. Knowing what you now know about Jewish thought at the time concerning death, oh, aren't you even more hopeful and grateful for the work that Christ has done? Okay, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to show that this thought was creeping into the church in Corinth, and Paul was addressing it in this passage. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Here's where we can find our hope. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Just for a minute, let's drop down to uh, verse 53. I want to pick it up at verse 53 on the next page. For this perishable body, now Paul's specifically referring to believers here in this passage. This, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must, be, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was combating this Jewish teaching about the afterlife and it was starting to creep into the church at Corinth. Oh, what a blessed hope we have in Jesus, the unearned, unwarranted gift of grace that allows us as followers of Jesus to shed these perishable bodies and put on non-perishable bodies and spend eternity free from pain and from suffering and death. To spend our time reunited with lost children and saved loved ones, all worshiping the one whose unselfish acts allowed us to be with him. So friends, let me say right here and right now, if you do not yet know Jesus, if you have not accepted this gift called grace and placed your help, faith and assurance in the completed work of the cross, what are you waiting for? I keep saying completed work on the cross because it is important that we remember just like the hymn tells us, that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. We can do nothing to earn or deserve this reward other than trust Jesus. Put our faith in his atoning work and accept his propitiating righteousness that is imputed onto us. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? What does that mean? It means Jesus paid our sin debt that was owed by us for sinning against the heavenly father. Yahweh demands a penalty for a payment for that sin, a penalty, if you will, must be paid. 
Jesus bore the wrath that was due to us. Jesus paid our penalty. If we try to clothe ourselves in our own earned righteousness, our own good deeds, our own pitiful attempt to fulfill the laws, what happens? God looks at our righteousness as being clothed in filthy rags. But oh, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as Savior, for those of us who see Jesus as our Lord, we are clothed in the spotless cloak of his righteousness. God looks at us as he looks at his son, pure, sinless, worthy of the Father's love. So as believers, we have, insu- we have assurance for ourselves. I think scripture offers assurance for infants and children. But what about adult children that don't yet know him? What about siblings and family members who don't have a relationship with Jesus? Their fate is far worse than Sheol. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the fate of the unbelievers when Christ returns, their ultimate fate. The lake of fire, a place of endless torment for all eternity. Again, another place in scripture where blunt words are used to convey an uncomfortable thought. Our modern world where we are insulated for the most part against too much hardship and day-to-day sufferings, it is easy to become complacent about such things and push them from our minds. We do this at our own peril and at great cost to our unsaved loved ones. We have to keep this fate at the forefront of our minds so that we do not become complacent in our outreach and evangelism efforts. Okay, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're now in verse 6. So he's referring to the man with the hundred children. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. The NIV says it a little better, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. That's how the NIV phrases it. The ESV is a, uh, it's more of a word-for-word translation, so when it goes from Hebrew or Greek to English, sometimes it's a little wooden. Um, but do you see how we are back to the original theme here? Solomon is saying, if you live a thousand years twice over, but fail to enjoy your prosperity, all you have accomplished is simply twice the misery. And then to top it off, the Jewish thinking at that time was that at the, that the end that awaited us all, do not all go to the one place the dark and shadowy non-life known as Sheol. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So this next section, verses 7 to 9, these three verses are actually better presented as poetry, like it is in the NIV, and thus they should be taken as a whole thought. The structure of poetry in this passage 
visu- visually shows that this portion is separated and the three verses are connected between themselves. We see some clever irony being used here uh, in the verse, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. We work to eat. In those days, if you didn't or couldn't work, you had to beg to eat. But the teacher is saying, all the toil is for the mouth, so that we can eat to stay alive, yet our appetites for more are never satisfied. Boy, isn't that true? In today's society, we, um, we are bombarded with marketing and advertising, let us, letting us know that happiness is just one more purchase away. Just buy this. Just wear this. Just go here. Just drive this. Just buy, buy, buy. And happiness will be yours in 12 monthly payments. In verse 8, we read, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Another cultural insight will help unlock this. In ancient days, wisdom was thought to be directly connected to wealth. If you were wise, it was assumed that you were wealthy or you would soon be wealthy. Conversely, if you were poor, you were assumed to be a bit of a dullard. So the teacher is asking, what good is it for a poor man to know how to conduct himself before others, presumably before others who are wealthier and wiser than him? Who does this poor man think he is? Verse 9 is saying, better to be satisfied with what you can see from where you are in your station in life than letting your appetite begin to roam and you start getting uppity ideas. For those uppity ideas are meaningless in the actions. And the actions of verse 7, 8, and 9 are a chasing after the wind, a losing proposition right from the start. Previously, the teacher has had a carpe diem attitude, you know, seize the day, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We've seen from the last couple of sermons that if God has enabled you to enjoy them, then you are blessed. In these passages, however, the teacher is warning that happiness will not be found in these pursuits, pursuits, especially if God does not empower you to enjoy them. Now, something interesting happens here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verses 10 and 12 mark the halfway point of the book, and we will see that the teacher starts to shift and he begins thinking about uh, the future before he begins to transition in the second half of the book, the next section of wise advice. The second half of the book is marked by a repeated emphasis on the things that people cannot know, cannot tell, and cannot discover. So let's look at verses 10 and 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is not known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So these three verses contend that humans are not able to take issue with what is happening in the universe. That's in verse 10. Mankind has no advantage, especially over God, and God is hinted at as the one that is stronger than he at the end of verse 10. And no man knows what is best for mankind apart from God. That's in verse 12. Now, Job 38, verse 4, makes this clear when Yahweh challenges Job with the statement, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. So let me ask Josh to come back up 
and uh, while I close this out in prayer. And then with your permission, after the final song, I'm gonna come up and just give a, a quick conclusion, a quick recap. So Father, we thank you for this day. Again, we thank you for your word. We uh, know these are difficult passages and we know that we can depend on you, your unchanging, unfailing love for us. It's because that you never change that we can have our faith in you. You're not a capricious God, you're an unchanging God. You are the same from the beginning to the end and because of that, we can have complete faith in our hope and placed in the finished work of your son on the cross. And for that, we offer eternal gratitude. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, okay, so I want to make one thing crystal clear here. Scripture does not specifically say where infants and children that die prematurely go. We have to keep in mind the words from Deuteronomy 29, 29 on this topic. Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We can take solace from and put our faith in a sovereign God based on his unchanging character and attributes. Let me tell you about an inspiring example of this. Horatio G. Spafford was a, success, a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. Their young son died of pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God, in his mercy, allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner, Ville de Harve, sank after colliding with another ship while crossing the Atlantic Ocean. It was headed to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among those passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Mr. Spafford had planned to be on board, but an unexpected business problem prevented him from joining the family. His plan was that he would join the family in Europe a few days later, following on another ship. As the Vildeharve was sinking, Anna Spafford and her four daughters were on the deck, and Anna prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within 12 minutes, the Vildeharve sank, carrying 226 passengers with it to the bottom of the ocean, including the four Spafford children. Anna was spotted floating on a piece of wreckage and rescued by a sailor rowing a lifeboat. They were picked up by a larger vessel, and nine days later they landed in Cardiff, Wales, where Anna sent a cable back to her husband that read, Saved alone, what shall I do? Another of the ship survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters, now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the ship, the next, on the next available ship. As he was crossing, they were within, uh, as they were crossing, they were four days away from shore, the captain called Mr. Spafford up to his cabin and he informed him that they were passing over the exact spot where the ship went down and his four daughters were. And according to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born to Anna and Horatio after this tragedy, Horatio then went down to his cabin and he penned the hymn, 
it is well with my soul. The lyrics include these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let the best blessed assurance control that Christ, yes he has, has regarded my helpless state and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Because of you, Jesus, it is well. Anna and Horatio had three more children, one of which died at age four of pneumonia. Only two of their eight children lived to adulthood. In August of 1881, the Spaffords moved to Jerusalem. Mr. Spafford later died and is buried in that city. But let us take inspiration from the Spaffords and the example that they set with their faith in Christ throughout all of their trials. Like we read earlier in Psalm 145, the Lord will preserve us. And if you're struggling with something or would like someone to pray with you or to pray for you, Dean and Gail will be up front and they would be more than happy to pray with you. But know this, Redemption Church, you are loved. Thank you.